God on trial. That's uh, what we're looking at today. And the amazing thing is, you know, we understand under, and we know uh, Jesus, creator um, of the universe, um, rightful owner of everything that exists, and the rightful judge of everyone, and um, he's going to be um, tried and judged by his creatures. And what does that uh, say about his creatures? What does that say about God? And that's what we're going to try to discover. But the first thing that we need to understand is that um, God did something that we still have a hard time really capturing in our minds when he created us. He stamped us with his image. It says imago Dei means the image of God, that he placed his fingerprint on each and every one of us when he made us. And part of what that means is that uh, we have a choice to accept or reject him. Um, from the very beginning, you know, God had put that within us, this, this moral agency, this, this ability to uh, receive him or reject him. And um, here's the, the, the value that he puts on us, that he would, he would entrust something so important to you, but then he would also say, um, you live with your choice. You're responsible for what you decide, for what you choose, what you accept or what you reject. Um, and the, the world, by and large, has rejected. And we're trying to wrestle with the idea of why that would be. Why would, why would the world reject its creator? And how do we deal with that? And what do we do with that? So let's pick up uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 13, as we try to understand some of these things. And standing as we read God's word this morning, Luke 23, starting in verse 13, we're going to kind of come to the end of the trial here. And we're going to work our way back through um, when we get started, but uh, we're going to see the conclusion here. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And ex after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Now, that's the second time that Pilate uh, has said that he's innocent. You see uh, back in verse 4, he says he finds no guilt in him. Then he says it again here. Three times he's going to say that. And then in verse 15, it says, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And Barabbas, the name there means son of the father. Bar is uh, significant. It means son. And Abba is father, son of the father, which is ironic that they're asking for Barabbas, who is guilty, um, to be released and the son of God to be condemned, even though he's innocent. Verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. That's the third time. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And Father, we give you all praise and glory and thanks that you would humble yourself. You who are greater than anything our minds can conceive, anything that our eyes have ever seen, our ears have ever heard, Lord, we, uh, we don't understand the, the grandeur of your greatness, your, your, the power of your glory, the wonder of, of your majesty, how highly exalted you are, and yet you would, you would lower yourself not only to become a man, but also to live a life of service and then to pay the sacrifice through your death, to submit yourself to the will of creatures that don't understand, don't comprehend that they are facing God, condemning and judging and Desiring your death and not knowing that even in doing that, that uh, it has paid the price for their salvation. And the willingness that you would turn around and then offer forgiveness even to the, the very ones who are shouting that you be crucified. On the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do and God, we are um, so extremely humbled by the, the thought and the idea that you would love us that much, paying that price, willing to, to stand silent before radical abuse, lies and mockery, Lord, and I, I just, I thank you that you uh, were willing to withstand that, that we might come close to you. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that we would not take for granted that wonderful choice that you've presented to us, Lord, the, the wonderful opportunity uh, to just lay our sin down at the cross and uh, receive absolute, complete forgiveness, righteousness, purity, restoration, um, hope of eternity. God, all your promises and all your blessings that you paid for all by yourself in spite of our sin. We thank you. So, Lord, we pray that today you would bring us into a greater awareness, a greater uh, strength of your Holy Spirit to walk closely with you, understand your truth, apply it to our lives, and, and share that good news, Lord, with a, a dying, hurting, and dark world. May you be glorified in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to step back and kind of see the progress of this whole um, scenario as it unfolds, this trial. Um, beginning last week, we saw the betrayal and uh, the religious rulers come with an army to arrest Jesus. And they finally... You know, think that they've got what they want. They've got him under arrest. They got him in their control, which is uh, kind of ridiculous. I mean, he's 
He's God. He can call down 10,000 angels. He could free himself at any moment, but he allows for this to happen, and, and he goes into this scenario, which we often look at with the high priest. He goes into the courtyard, and they got the Sanhedrin, which is their religious ruling body that comes together, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees. they got all these, these people who are going to come and, and try to figure out some way to um, legally uh, you know, persecute or prosecute Jesus. And we get honed in on Peter and his denial. So usually we don't focus a lot on the, the actual trial and what it's going, what's going on there because we're so consumed with Peter's denial of Jesus. Well, a few weeks ago we talked about Peter and what was going on there. So we're going to kind of ignore him for the remainder here and just kind of look at what's going on. So when Jesus comes before the religious rulers, what's happening is they have certain laws that they're trying to in their own way, abide by it. And one of the laws is that a person cannot be condemned to death unless there's a, a, a corroborating witness of at least two. Two people have to agree. Well, they can't get that worked out. So they have um, false witnesses that they bring, people that they've somehow manipulated or, or coached or whatever to come in and bring witness against Jesus. And even then, they can't get them to agree. Um, and so they're in danger of losing this whole, you know, fight with Jesus uh, over that, except for they finally get a clue and say, okay, well, um, maybe we can get him to condemn himself. Maybe he can, he'll say something that we could, you know, condemn him for. So if he will verbally say something that we can say is blasphemy, then we can kill him. So what they ask is, are you the Christ, right? Which he says, well, duh, <laughs> kind of. I mean, that's, that's my paraphrase. But he's been saying that all along. I mean, all the way from, if you look in the Gospel of Luke, from the age of 12, right, he's in the temple and his parents, they're looking for him and they can't find him. They finally come back to the temple. They find him talking to the religious leaders there, asking them questions and answering and, and saying things that no Nobody can even imagine a 12-year-old could possibly know. And what does he say? I had to be in my father's house. Well, he could have been condemned and stoned to death at 12 years old for a statement like that if it weren't true. But they, they knew, Mary knew, he was the Messiah. I mean, they, they had all the angelic revelations and visions and dreams and the unique circumstances. They understood. They didn't quite grasp the whole reality of it, but they understood that he's, he's something special. He's something unique that God's doing in the world. And so fast forward to adulthood, and then John the Baptist comes along, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He's declaring verbally that Jesus is the Messiah, right? This isn't new news to anybody that Jesus is, is saying that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world. Um, he talks to his disciples, says, who do, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, they, some people say maybe you're the prophet or maybe Elijah or maybe, you know. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're the, the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, and so they knew. And then he talks to religious leaders, Pharisees, and he says, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am, which is a, it's a very messianic, but also a God statement. And they, 
uh, wanted to kill him at that point, but they couldn't because Jesus is in control of his time and when he's going to go to the cross and, and the payment. It's not in anybody else's hands but his. And then just this prior week, uh, the triumphal entry, we all have you know celebrated Palm Sunday and, and over the years and what that means and what it is is a public declaration that uh, he is the Messiah. And, and they, the whole city uh, agreed with that. They were worshiping and laying down their coats and their palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which means God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. These are all messianic statements. and They're all declaring it. And Jesus says, and they asked him, he said, won't you silence these people? And what does he say? If they don't say something, then the rocks will cry out. Because it, it just has to be declared that he's the Christ. So when they say, are you the Christ? It's kind of like, where have you been? Don't you, you know? <laughs> this isn't news. But then he says something. He quotes Daniel chapter 7. He says, then the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds, seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. Okay. He's just quoting a prophecy, a scripture that declared what the Messiah will do. And they tear their clothes, and they scream, and they're all upset, and, and they always committed blasphemy, and now he deserves to die. And They know that he's not guilty, but they condemn him and reject him anyway. In favor of what? They reject the Redeemer in favor of their religion. Okay, now the Bible, here's what we see cover to cover, okay? You read this book cover to cover. What you're going to see is God is much more concerned with a personal relationship with his people, his creatures, his creation, you and me, human beings, than he is with any form of religion. Now, he gives us some forms of religion, okay? I'm not saying they're all bad, but the religion was intended to guide us into a relationship with God. The religious leaders of Jesus's day should have been the people of all the people in the world to be ready, prepared, uh, under, aware of, understanding, and excited for, and anticipating, and joyful for the arrival of Jesus, right? They should have longed for that, been ready for that, have understood it when it happened, and yet they got so consumed with their form of religion that they rejected the very thing that their religion was pointing to, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So what we have to do is to understand what God was willing to do. He's going to destroy the temple um, in AD 70, about a generation later after Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, but that's the second time that he's allowed the temple to be completely demolished. He, he will allow for any form of religion to be destroyed in order to uh, promote a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, do you understand the importance for us to grasp that concept? Because we have a, a persistent problem in the human race. We are not immune to this as 21st century believers, unfortunately. 
which is that we oftentimes prefer the structure of religion over the ambiguity of a relationship with God. Tell me what to do. Tell me when to show up. Show me, you know, how to live a, a life that is good and that I can be confident that God will accept and um, put aside all the things of a personal nature because I don't want to have to deal with that. Just tell me what the rules are. They preferred their rules over the relationship, and a lot of times we do the same thing. Um, there's uh, this concept in mission work, um, which is called evangelism on three levels, okay? Evangelism on three levels has to do with the type of people that you're going to share the gospel with. So on the first level, which is E1, evangelism one, evangelism is sharing Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, you need to receive him as your savior. Okay, that's evangelism. Um, E1 means sharing that truth with people that are mostly like you, okay? People that you live with, people that you work with, people that you do life with around you in your community. So uh, you share the gospel with a coworker. That's E1 evangelism. They're not saved. They're not churched people, but they're very much like you. Uh, E2 evangelism is when you do kind of cross-cultural uh, mission work or evangelism, which means a couple years ago, we sent uh, our high schoolers to South Dakota to a uh, Indian reservation to do some uh, mission work. Okay, that's E2 evangelism because even though they're Americans, they speak English, their culture is very different. Would you agree? Those of you who went on that trip, you understand like they live differently than we do. They understand things differently than we do. We, we can speak the same language, but it's, it's, it's a leap from where I'm at to where they're at. That's E2 evangelism. E3 evangelism is what happens when we go to El Salvador. Okay, we are going to a people that uh, look differently than us. They speak a different language. They, they have a different culture. Um, it's a very um, radical difference between how we live and how we understand life and how they live and how they understand life. But we can communicate and have fellowship with our friends down in El Salvador because of the gospel. That's our linking factor between us and our missionaries down there is that we have this common denominator. Um, but it's a very big leap from what we understand American life to be to what they understand El Salvadorian life to be. What we discovered is that there is also a fourth level of evangelism, but it's called E0 evangelism, which means there are people, believe it or not, sitting in church pews all over America and all over the world who are being informed by a religion that has not led them to salvation, okay? And what tends to happen, depending on the structure of the church worship and et cetera, I don't want to say that a Baptist church is any less likely for this to happen just because we're, we're not um, very liturgical because a Baptist church can have the very same thing happen as any other type of denomination. But when you have a lot of ritual and ceremony and pomp and circumstance and sacrament, etc., those things can become your faith instead of leading you into faith. And you can have 
structure without substance. Now, we try to intentionally err on the side. We don't want to err, but we tend to err on the side of substance and not be concerned with the structure. Some people appreciate that. Some people, it drives them crazy. But we want to make sure that uh, we don't take for granted that any given Sunday, there are people sitting in the pews in the sanctuary every week who need E0 evangelism. They need to hear the gospel. They're coming to a church service on a regular basis. They're hearing the things about what it means to be a Christian, but they need to know Jesus Christ personally, make a personal decision to follow him individually, and nobody can make that decision for you, and coming to a church service doesn't do that automatically to you. You get that? It's the place where you can hear and learn and see and maybe come into contact with God, but it is not a replacement for what it means to know him personally. Religion is fine if it leads you to the relationship. And God will tear down any religion that doesn't do that. Okay, There's a choice that was made at this trial. And the choice was we prefer our religion and our structure over everything that it was pointing to. I don't know why they found power in it. They found security in it. They found position, safety. I don't know. But that was their choice. And I'm saying that because you and I have to make the same choice. Every given Sunday, we have to make the same decision. If I'm going to let my one hour of singing and listening and giving and praying be my relationship, or am I going to let that be the launch pad for what I really need, which is to know Jesus Christ for myself? And when this gets in the way of that, then this needs to stop. And I'm, you know, kind of personally uh, invested in making sure it doesn't stop. So we want to make sure that we always share the need for that personal relationship every single week, okay? That was the first thing that was happening. Even though Jesus was innocent, they rejected him, and they sent him on uh, to Pilate. Now, Pilate very quickly um, finds out Jesus is a Galilean, so he sends him to Herod. So we're going to come back to Pilate at the end, but what happens is that Herod is the governor, basically, of Galilee, where Jesus is from, and Pilate kind of wants to push Jesus off of his plate and onto somebody else's. So he, he sends him over to Herod. Herod is curious about Jesus. He's been interested to hear from Jesus, to see him do something. Um, if you remember back, if you've read you know, uh, the, the Gospels, you see that Herod uh, believed at one point that, that maybe Jesus was John the, the Baptist resurrected uh, because he had had John the Baptist killed uh, beheaded because John the Baptist was in prison when he said, Herod, you should not be married to your brother's wife. <laughs> There's all kinds of family drama going on. Uh, Herod didn't like it. His new wife didn't like it. They put John the Baptist in prison. Um, then there was the whole dance thing. And Okay, go back and you read that. Well, he didn't know, so he, he wanted to see for himself, maybe, okay, is this really John the Baptist? He knows what John the Baptist looks like, but he hasn't seen Jesus. This is his first chance and his last chance to see Jesus. 
Maybe he'll do a miracle. Maybe he'll, you know, say something really cool. Maybe something will happen. Maybe there'll be some mysterious spiritual thing. You know, he's kind of curious. Now, he rejects Jesus because he, Jesus, does not do what? Anything that he wants. Okay? Um, a generation ago, there was a movement in the United States called the Seeker Movement. Um, primarily, it was founded by Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. Um, and the idea is, you know, not bad. The idea is basically there are people that are curious about Christianity. If we can just kind of bring them into an environment where they can hear the gospel and um, help them to kind of, in a, in, a, in a way, be sensitive to their concerns, their questions, or then uh, maybe we can ease them into faith. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's possible. I think there are a lot of people that got saved through that movement. Um, but there's an inherent problem, an inherent problem uh, with that, which is there tends to be an underlying um, temptation to compromise the gospel so you don't scare people off. You don't want to speak hard truth to people who are kind of curious. You, want to tell, you don't want to tell them that their sin is uh, repugnant to God and needs to be forgiven and, and only through the blood of Jesus can that be taken care of and that it's, you know, you got to be guilty before you can be um, pronounced not guilty. You have to agree with God before God can agree with you. Uh, you don't want to scare people off. And, and what has happened is that because of that tendency to try to slowly and without offending anyone, you know, bring people into an environment where they can hear the gospel without it being, you know, hard to hear and understand, then uh, we have this, it, it's changed, but it's still prominent. In fact, it's probably even more prominent now than it was back in the early 80s, which is uh, we want to give you biblical uh, principles to, you know, improve your life. And here's, you know, three things that the Bible says about how to have a nice marriage. And here's five things that, that you can apply to your life to fix your finances. And here's how, you know, two principles that'll help you raise your kids and all these different things. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with taking principles from the Bible and applying them to your life, except when you remove the need for Jesus Christ, which is what people tend to prefer. Give me the things that help me feel better about my life. Don't tell me about the things that, you know, are really hard, which is that sin is evil and it has to be, you know, forgiven, and then you have to walk away from it. Don't tell me that stuff. Just tell me the stuff that, you know, gives me a... But here's the thing. Eventually, that stuff doesn't work apart from a relationship with God. It, it doesn't solve your problems. And so the seeker movement, what it created in a lot of people was a, a disenchantment and a dis, in, disenfranchisement. I don't know if I said that right, but from God. You're disappointed because God didn't fix all my problems and church didn't work. You ever hear that? Yeah, I went to church for a while. It didn't work for me. Because why? Because we were like Herod. We wanted God 
to be a genie in a bottle to do what I want him to do, but God doesn't promise that. God promises to be faithful to his word and his promises. No matter what happens in your life, no matter the difficulties and the struggles and the health concerns and the relationship failures and the financial issues and the economic problems and the rebellious children and whatever, God doesn't say, I'm going to fix all those things and, and make sure you have a really nice life. He says, I will be with you through that. And I'll give you the power of my Holy Spirit to walk through in perseverance and in power and in peace and in joy through the troubles of life, but I'm not going to take away the troubles of your life. And if you're looking for God to take away the troubles of your life before you're going to trust and believe in him, then you're going to end up making the choice that Herod made, which was, God doesn't play by my rules. I don't want anything to do with them. And even though he's pronouncing him innocent, he's rejecting him. And that's what Herod does. And that's what seekers have the decision I'm not saying they always make that decision, but they have the decision to make. Will I receive God on his terms, or will I only receive him on my terms? See how hard that can be? So he sends him back to Pilate, and uh, Pilate questions, questions, but he, he comes back three different times, says he's innocent, I don't see any guilt in him. I... Here's what's going on with Pilate. Um, Pilate is dealing with a mob, and not just a normal mob, that'd be bad enough, but Jerusalem at this point um, is flooded with people because it's the most important uh, festival of their religion, okay? Passover is happening, and so it is 10 times bigger than it normally is. So you got people from all over Israel, all over the world coming to Jerusalem, and Pilate's dealing with a, a mob of people who are believing, the religious rulers and leaders, who are telling them that Jesus needs to be put to death. So they're just kind of, this is mob mentality, group think. It happens all the time. You get into this group and you hear one thing and basically everybody owns it and runs away with it. And Pilate is dealing with that. But here's the thing that Pilate says in the Gospel of John that really gives us a clue what's actually happening. Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to my voice, right? And then Pilate says something very famous. Remember what Pilate says in, in response? What is truth? Pilate is able to say three times he's innocent and then condemn him to death because Pilate functions on what we call cultural morality. Cultural morality is very different from ethics. If you were to go, probably, I'm assuming, on the street and ask any person that you came into contact with, what's the difference between morality and ethics? I am betting that 99% of people would have no idea that there is any difference. We have been brainwashed into thinking that majority rule is ethical. The difference is this. An ethic is if 51% of people agree with it, then it's okay, morally acceptable. If 
more than a majority say that it's okay, then we're going to do that thing. Ethics is according to who God is, there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong, no matter if no one agrees with him. doesn't matter if the entire human race, like in the days of Noah, you had one man who believed God, followed God, had faith in God, and the entire world was doing their own thing and thinking that they were okay because they were in the what? In the majority. Our culture at this point follows the morals of Pilate. What's truth? Why do you get to say what truth is? Why do, why do Christians think that they have a handle on, on what's right and wrong? And the reason is not because we're so arrogant to think that our way is the right way. It's because we're trusting God in His will, in His word, what He has revealed. Okay, that's, that's our foundation. When you move off of that foundation, which our culture has been doing for the last 60 years pretty, pretty intentionally, okay, when we remove God from school, when we remove the Bible, when we remove the Ten Commandments, when we remove any talk of God in public spaces, when we remove um, the fact that people, you know, should even have uh, a religious foundation and say, no, you can't bring that into government, you can't bring that into anything public, that's private. We've intentionally removed God, so what has happened is we have no foundation for how to understand right and wrong. Now we've moved into the arena of whatever the majority thinks, okay? And when you do that, what, what will happen, what we are seeing happen, is that um, the one generation tolerates evil, the next generation um, pursues it, and then the third generation um, demands it, Okay? But it used to be generation shift 30, 40 years. Now it's within the same generation. You're seeing the tolerance and the acceptance and the, um, <laughs> the pursuit and then the demand in one generation. It's radically, exponentially just building in our culture right now. And, and you just think, what, what's happening? Well, it's obvious what's happening. There's no bottom to that. There's no limit. There's no line. You think that we've, we've crossed lines already? I mean, we crossed a huge line when we accepted gay marriage, when that became a federal thing, and that became acceptable, and that's, okay, we crossed the line. Where's the next line? The transgender thing I did not see coming. Uh, polygamy is coming. Um, children, you're going to see there's no line. There's, there's, no, there's no bottom to how far we can go when it's, we're just depending on the majority of people to come up with some rule for how we should act. So people are going to want to marry children. There's already legislation in different states for that. There's already legislation in different states for polyamory, poly polygamy. Okay, we're, we're beginning to 
push the ball forward faster and faster and faster and faster. And, and this is where our culture is headed. Because as long as we can get the support of the majority of people, then we can get anything done. That, that's where we're at. What's shocking and frightening is that the church, within the church, what I'm saying is controversial. <laughs> I'm going to get emails and phone calls and letters and telling me I should not have said some things that I've already said. <laughs> I'll, I'll forward those on to you. <laughs> I, here's what I love, I really love about our church is that our church demands the truth. Unvarnished, unapologetic, that we're not going to agree with the culture no matter how, how violently opposed the culture is to the truth of God. And that, that is comforting, but this is the environment we live in, guys. You know, this may be a fairly safe place to talk about some of these things. As soon as you leave here, you go into your schools, is it safe and acceptable to talk about it there? Your workplaces, among your coworkers, among the people that you do business with, you start talking about ethics, true, right and wrong, according to who God is and what his word says and what his will is, what he's revealed, you're going to see there's tension, if not outright abrasive rejection. The world has to make a choice. And you say, man, this is like, what do you do with that? I mean, we, 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 we're trying to help people to see the love that God has for us, that he'd be willing to receive us, even though we're so desperately lost that, that our sin would lead us into deeper and worse and uglier and darker sin if it's unchecked. And we're trying to tell them that Jesus is the way and, and that sin is destructive and there's hope and, and there's heaven and you have a, a, a chance to know God and he, can, he will walk with you and he's willing to forgive you. And you say, what do you do with that? And here's two things, okay? First thing is that within the church, I, I always say this and I'm just going to tell you again, um, and, and this is not, I, I hope, um, false humility, but I, I really want you to understand, this is not my opinion, okay? Search it out for yourself. Read this book for yourself and come to your own conclusion, okay? When you come to the, the Word of God respectfully, okay, I, I want to respect the Lord I, and I want to respect His Word and I want to receive what He's having, what He's saying to me. When you, when you read it, without varnish, without somebody else's perception, what conclusion do you come to? My conclusion is that God wants a personal relationship with me. He loves me, he died for me, and he wants to, me to know him, and he wants to know me. And uh, that's the greatest thing in life, to personally know God. Um, so that's the first thing, just that we, we have our own personal walk with God in faith. Don't let anybody 
come in between you and God. Secondly, is there hope? And I do believe there is hope. Um, I was asked just a few weeks ago, um, is it too late? <laughs> is it too late for our world? Should I be praying for a revival when things are this bad? Is, or should I just be praying for Jesus to come back and the rapture and the end? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> Very PC answer. But I mean, here's the thing. I don't know, I don't know when the end's going to happen. Okay? Nobody does. Um, God does. But as long as we're here, we have a, an opportunity. And I don't know if our nation's going to turn back to the Lord, but I know that some people can and will. Somebody that you're working with, somebody that you're living with, somebody that, that you know, somebody you're going to school with, can hear the gospel and turn because I'm looking at hundreds of people who have had that same experience. And I don't know if it's going to be crowds of people, but if it's even one person, there's hope. There's at least hope for that one. So we don't give up. We continue. We persevere. We have hope in us because, like I said, God didn't promise that everything was going to be easy. He just said, I'll be with you. And so we're going to persevere in our walk with the Lord, and he's going to give us the strength to continue to have hope because he paid the price. And what that means is that I don't have to pay it, and you don't have to pay it, and your friend doesn't have to pay it, and your son doesn't have to pay it, and your coworker doesn't have to pay it. Jesus paid it for them, for us. And all we do is say, here's the gift. I hope you'll accept it, but you make the choice. Amen. Father, we thank you. Lord, we love you. We give you praise that you don't hold back. You don't hold back your grace and your love. You, you were innocent and rejected. And we are guilty and accepted. why you would transfer your innocence to us, why you would transfer your righteousness to us is beyond conception, is beyond understanding. But God, you cannot lie. We trust you. We believe you. We accept your plan. And Lord, we want to live courageously, in a world that uh, constantly wants to pressure us to abandon our faith because we know that you are greater. And we give you all our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you, Ethan, always, my mic. Hello. I want to invite you this morning to two things, and I've already said it, but I want to say it one more time. It's so important that if you do not know Jesus Christ and have not received him, that you understand it is a personal, individual decision that you have to make. Agree with God that you have sinned 
and agree with God that he paid the price for that sin through Jesus. Amen. And you just say, God, would you forgive me? Would you receive me in the name of Jesus? The promise is that if you will pray that prayer, if you will say that, he will not turn you away. Isn't that an awesome thing? It's a guarantee. It's not based on anything else other than a willful acceptance by faith. Secondly, if you are a believer and confident in your faith and, and you're just a little bit disappointed with the world, would you agree with me to have hope for somebody? Just that God would take your life and make it have an impact on somebody, anybody. And what happens is that you begin to have a sense of renewed joy. When, when I see one person getting it, just, you know, the light bulb come on and faith start and, you know, a relationship with, with Jesus Christ begin, it's just, I mean, it changes my whole week, my whole month, my whole year. <laughs> Amen? Just have hope for somebody. And uh, the altar is a place you can come make a decision. You can do it where you're at. You can take it home with you. But uh, let's just uh, let God do his work this morning. Amen. Let's stand and sing.